Chances are it's not all smooth, level going. Sometimes you have to march through valleys and over hills and through very difficult territory. And you know, our Christianity sometimes can be seen exactly the same way. We start out, we hear the gospel, we decide to repent of our sins, we're baptized into Christ, we come up out of that baptistry ready to take on the world. We know our sins are forgiven and we are just ready. And so we go through a little bit of that Christian walk and we sin and let the Lord down. Ultimately, as we know that we're going to, we don't do it on purpose, we're ashamed of it, but we do it. But we know, based on 1 John, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We understand the continual cleansing, and so we get up and we go again. We go a little further and we let the Lord down, and we go through the same cycle again and again and again. And somewhere along the line, what can happen if we're not very careful? Yes, we should be ashamed to sin. Yes, we should hate to sin. Yes, we should avoid sin. There's, there's no getting around that, okay? But sometimes when we go through this process, and it is a journey, it is a march, it takes decades, what we can do is let Satan get us to the point that when we get down, we can let him get in there and say, well, you know, God really, you know, how can you keep failing? You've let God down again, and you know, maybe you ought to just give up on this walk and he can start planting those seeds. And what he can try to do is to get our eyes off of the grace of God, off of God's patience with us. We cannot sin that grace may abound. We cannot sin because God is patient. We can't use that as an excuse. But sometimes we go so far the other direction, we leave that totally out of the equation and, and we focus on, I failed and let God down again and oh, how can he love me and throw up our hands and quit. And brethren, I'm here to tell you this morning that when Satan tries to do that, we need to balance that with the other side of this and that is God's patience with us. Christianity is a journey. Christianity is a process. When you are marching, you do not take one step and get to the finish line. If you did, that wasn't a march, it was a step. A march is made up of a lot of steps. One of the most beautiful and encouraging things about the Bible is how the Lord uses weak, common, ordinary, everyday people to give us some of the most incredible, incomparable knowledge, some of the most extraordinary and powerful insights as he uses those common everyday human beings to illustrate his love and patience. And, and the thing that sets these characters apart is not their human circumstances. It, it isn't like you become a Christian and God puts you in this impenetrable bubble where no problems can happen. I'm sure you all know that, right? Apostle Paul knew it, Job knew it, although Job wasn't a Christian, but he was very, very faithful to God because Christians hadn't come into being yet because the New Testament hadn't been established. But the fact is, is, is all of these people that were human people that God used to explain things, to show things, and to give victories to, they weren't, they, they didn't have some sort of special immunity from bad stuff happening to them, from bad things happening to them. They didn't have immunity from physical infirmities or spiritual calamities or, or anything like that. What sets all of these people apart, both then and now, is their commitment to God. Their commitment to God. That's what set them apart even when they failed. They trusted God and they took his hand and they got up and they tried it again. They had the humility 
and the willingness to allow God to use their failures to help them grow and to mature and to groom them into his image on a daily basis. I want to look at an entire life today. Well, most of an entire life. I want us to think this morning about the life of a man who wrote so much of the encouragement, the wonderful stuff that we find in our New Testaments. Incredibly wonderful stuff. And that was the Apostle John. The Apostle John. But you know, with all that the Lord divinely inspired the Apostle John to write, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the fact that he was just a human being. He was just a man, as Peter said to Cornelius. He was just a human being. However, it's who he was as a person that allowed the Lord to use him and divinely inspire him to write. It's who he was as a human being that God took and molded and shaped over time. And John failed. John had failures. Let's talk about his early life when he's called. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 4. We'll get there shortly. John, for those of you who were taking notes, trying to open your Bibles at the same time, I guess I can give you a minute. It'll be a very short minute. John was the son of Zebedee, a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Mark chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. His mother's name was Salome. Matthew 27, verse 56, and Mark 15 and verse 40. We don't know much about the religious perspective of his father, but his mother was one of the women who followed Jesus all the way up to the crucifixion, as we would see in those two texts that I just referenced for you. The fact that it was his mother and not his father who went to Jesus and asked about her two sons having the place of prominence there in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, would tell us of a little bit more about her, and it would also furnish support that perhaps, like young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5, it was his mother who was the stronger godly person in that family. Speaking of his family, he was, John was, most likely the younger brother of James. We know this because in 18 out of the 19 verses in the New Testament, where both James and John appear in the same text, the two brothers, James is mentioned first, which very, very typical in writing of that time to mention the children in succession. So more than likely, John was the younger brother of James. And he came from an affluent family. Again, this wasn't a, a person that was like Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. We see in Mark 1 and verse 20 that his family had hired servants that helped in their fishing business. We would also note that James and John and their family, with Peter and Andrew and their family, were business partners, Luke 5 and verse 10, as fishermen. We conclude from Mark 27, 56 and Luke 8, 1 through 3, that John's mother was one who helped to financially support Jesus 
and his little band of disciples. The fact that John was known by the high priest, as we learn from John 18, 15, implies that he came from a family of affluence and influence and high social standing. You know, here's something to consider. Maybe as we consider the affluence of his family or the affluence that seems to be indicated by the scriptures, maybe John could identify a little bit more with the rich young ruler than we might have thought at first, except of course for his response to the Lord. We would notice that when Jesus came to the point we're about to read from in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, when he came to the place of work and called him, John, along with his older brother James, immediately joined with their business partner Peter and his brother Andrew in following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18, it says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, whom we're discussing this morning, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Mark would say in Mark 1.20, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. And again, we've already mentioned the hired servants, but, but here's something to think about. In those days, family loyalty was a big deal. And often the children would follow in their, their father's and mother's footsteps. Hence here, the sons would follow in their father's footsteps. They were already being trained to be fishermen. They were working with their dad and, and the hired servants. And so for James and John to get up and leave their dad. They didn't just leave the business. They didn't just leave the hired, the hired servants. They left their dad, too. They left their family. They left a very important family member. They left everything to follow Jesus. Contrast that with some of the excuses that some of the people of that day gave why they would not follow Jesus from Luke 9 verses 57 through 62 where it says now it happened as they journeyed on the road someone said to him lord i will follow you wherever you go and jesus said to him foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head the conversation stops there and so we assume that that was the end of it for them then he said to another follow me but this one said, Lord, let me first go and, and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, those who won't follow me, let them bury, those who are spiritually dead, let them bury their physical dead, but you go and preach the kingdom. Now they also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Let, let, me, let me take care of this first, Lord. Something else more important than you, I, that's important, but, but let me first do this. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That wasn't John. John was ready. John left the boats, left his father, left the business. Way he goes. 
In fact, Luke adds in Luke 5 and verse 11, they forsook all and followed him. That remind you of anybody? Reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9, where he said, But what things were gained to me? These I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, having a righteousness of God, not one that comes from the law. Maybe like you. When you realized the truth, and, and maybe, maybe you had family members that, that didn't understand the truth, maybe you came from a different religious background, maybe you came from no religious background like I did, well, not much of one, and, and, and you just, you're willing to, to leave it all behind. You understood the truth, you wanted to go to heaven, you wanted to be saved, you understood the truth, and you were ready to go. Well, John was ready to go. Reminds me kind of of something I recently read. Brother Kevin Colley wrote an article, Boiling Our Oxen. When we come to Christ, we need to boil our oxen. Think about that. We need to boil our oxen. He wrote, when Elijah, Elijah, called Elisha to become a prophet, he was plowing with a yoke of oxen. He took the oxen and slaughtered them. He used the yoking equipment as fuel to boil the meat, and he gave the meat to the people to eat. Why did he do this? He was cutting ties to his past because he knew that his work as God's prophet demanded everything. That story is in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. And so John leaves everything behind. He's ready to follow Jesus. And so he starts following him. From that point on, Peter and James and John are privy to some incredible events that some of the other apostles or the other apostles, period, were not. But you've got to remember, and this is where we sometimes lose it, lose sight of it. You've got to remember that when Peter and James and John started following Jesus, they weren't perfect. They were no more perfect than you were when you came out of the baptistry. Now, perfect in the eyes of God, your sins, I understand that. But let me tell you, how many of you came up out of that baptistry never, never to sin again? Raise your hand. And if you do, you're lying, so you just sinned. These were human beings. Despite leaving everything, despite their commitment, despite it all, remember that these were common, ordinary, typical young men in many respects. They could be prideful, they could be aggressive, they could be egotistical, and a whole lot more self-centered at times than they should have been, just as so many young men in particular are generally prone to be before time and chance happened to them all. Ecclesiastes 9.11. Let me ask you something. Some of you older men and women, some of the things you go through in life kind of soften you up a little bit. Yeah, uh-huh. Kind of take a little bit of that pride and self-centeredness out of us. It does. It's done it for me. John was no exception to this. No exception to being a young man full of, of pride and ego. Even after he decided that he would give everything to follow Jesus, he wasn't perfect. Brethren, he wasn't. 
In Mark 3 and verse 17, do you remember the name that Jesus gave James and John? Boanerges, the sons of thunder. He didn't do that because John was perfect. He didn't do that because John had a loud voice. He did it because of his disposition. Sons of thunder. We see the personality of these two in Luke chapter 9. Please turn there with me, Luke chapter 9. They're already followers of Jesus. They've already left everything behind. But that, I'm telling you what, they still made their mistakes. In Luke 9, beginning at verse 51, it says this. It came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But those Samaritans, verse 53, did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Samaritans did not like the Jews going up to Jerusalem. It, it, the whole long story, I won't go into the history, but these people did not like each other. Okay? Was there racial problems in the Bible? Yes, there were. Okay. So they're not going to welcome Jesus. They're not going to prepare because he's going up to Jerusalem. So when his disciples, verse 54, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? Lord, they don't agree with us. Let's cook them. Lord, they're not on the same page with us. Let's get them. Is that kind of the brashness of you, right? Hey, if you don't agree with me, you've had it. I'm going to get you. That's John. As a young man, just, just full of fire. The Lord turned, verse 55, and he rebuked them. Even after they'd left everything, they still made their mistakes, and, and Jesus had to get on them for it, personally. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And, and they went to another village. Jesus knew the problem was easily avoidable. He could just take a different route. But he had, he had to take that, that spiritual Kodak moment. And for those of you that are too young to know what that is, ask an old person like me, okay? They had to take that, that Kodak moment, he did, and just teach them. And he, he actually corrected them. He rebuked them for their youthful brashness. We see this egotistical pride and arrogance once again on display when... They wanted the places of prominence at the table when he came into his kingdom. Matthew 20, 20 through 28, as we've already mentioned. It's also in Mark 10, 35 through 45. Here's something that sometimes happens. Sometimes, sometimes, I've seen it. Maybe you have too. Sometimes, in their brashness and pride, some young people can get to the point where they want all the glory with none of the work. All of the prominence without any of the effort. That's why they wanted the, they wanted the places of prominence in the kingdom. They weren't willing to put in the work necessarily. They just thought that because they were who they were that they just deserved it. They thought they could just take advantage and get whatever they wanted without serving or sacrificing anything of their own. And Jesus, once again, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, had to set them straight. He said, let me tell you who the greatest is. And he does. He said, you, you, you want to be prominent in the kingdom? You've got to work. There's a price to be paid. You have to be a servant. You don't just waltz in and take the top spots. It doesn't work that way. They had to be corrected again. 
But, but here's the thing that I want for us to understand. Don't miss this this morning. Don't lose this. Another thing, or, or the one thing that Jesus did not do. There's something Jesus did not do. What is it that Jesus did not do? Yes, I've said it three times, and I'm tempted to go three more. What is it that Jesus did not do? Jesus did not give up on them. That's the key. Jesus did not give up on them just because they were young or just because they were slow to grow. God doesn't give up on people just because they're slow to grow. Aren't you glad? I'll tell you what, the guy standing in front of you is really pleased about that. And I mean that. I mean that. David. Do you remember what King David said? We sing it in the song. David said in Psalm 25, 7, Remember not the sins of my youth. David says, man, when I was younger, I, 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 I would. Let me ask you something. If you're over 50, were you a different person when you were 17? If there's one of you here that says I'm the same person, we need to talk about growth in Christ. Remember, but, but God's patient, and, and Jesus kept on patiently working with them, and he helped them outgrow their maturity. And every time they'd stumble, he would, he would help them up. I, I want you to think about that. They were there with him on the Mount of Olives when he asked those three questions about the end of his kingdom and when he'd return, Mark 13, verses 3 and following. You remember that he kept giving them responsibility, and he, and he kept working with them again and again and again. It was Jesus who sent John, along with Peter, on a mission to prepare where he was going to eat the Passover that final night before he was crucified. We see this in Luke 22 and verse 8. Peter, James, and John were the closest to Jesus Christ our Lord that night in the garden. You remember that? Takes his disciples and, and nine of them stay in one spot. And he takes Peter, James, and John, and they go a little bit further with him. And then Jesus goes beyond them and falls on his face. And that's when he prays, Lord, not my will, but thine. Remember that? Peter, James, and John were in the closest proximity. Wait a minute, wait a minute. John, the son of thunder, John that wanted to call, call lightning down and, and nuke the Samaritan, that John, that John who, who was so immature that he thought he could just undercut everybody and, and get the place. Yes, yes, Jesus was patient with them. It didn't make their sin right, but he understood and he was patient with them. And he gave them more opportunities to grow and to see and to experience what it meant to be a follower of his. Peter and John gained entrance into the courtyard after Jesus was betrayed, John 18, 15, and 16. And John is the only disciple we see at the foot of the cross. Did you ever think about that? You suppose something's beginning to click in there. You suppose after three and a half years, something's beginning to make sense. John is the one that we see at the foot of the cross. The others may have popped up here or there, but we see that. And what did Jesus do? This son of thunder, this brash lightning call down on the Samaritans. What did Jesus do? Jesus said, if I may paraphrase, John, take care of my mother. Take care of my mother. Was Jesus giving him another opportunity despite his brashness and his mistakes? Absolutely. Jesus was patient with John. 
And I want you to think about that. Here's John at the cross. Everything that, that you have completely believed in, you've been totally committed to, you've given up every earthly thing for, walked away from your family for, seems to be falling apart right before your eyes. Here's Jesus on the cross. And here you are, you've given up your family and all this stuff and, 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 to a degree. And there he is. And it's, it's over. And then on top of it, what does Jesus say to you? Oh, by the way, my mother who's grieving, I want you to be the one to take care of her. Take care of her in her grief and her tears, John. You sacrifice everything for the Lord. You work for him for years. You see it all fall apart within a few moments by comparison. What, what would you do? Would you want to quit? If everything you know about Christianity was, was bombed out of existence, make you want to, would it shake you? You ever had anything shake your faith? Well, this was, this, this cross and seeing Jesus on it, that was a faith shaker, brethren. And as if that wasn't enough, now you have the added responsibility of serving as caregiver for another's aging and grieving mother who has just lost her son on top of everything else. But here's the key. Remember what I said early on? What set them apart was their commitment. Do you remember that? So here you are with, it looks like everything's over. Now you've got this grieving mother to take care of. And what you need to understand is that this did not diminish John's faith. It didn't diminish his service. It didn't diminish it whatsoever. It seems like it might have even increased it. Maybe he's beginning to outgrow his youthful self-centeredness after all. Let me ask you a question. You suppose Jesus knew he would? I don't know where you are today. I know where I am to a degree. I don't know where you are. Let me ask you this. If you've got something that you've got to outgrow and you spend the next, I don't know, decade, and you work at it, and by the grace of God, you overcome it. Do you suppose Jesus knows today that you're going to? Absolutely. Jesus knew. Because John was going to stay committed no matter what. And his commitment is what would allow him to grow, despite the mistakes he would make. And God would be patient with him, and he was, and it did happen. After the crucifixion, we see Peter and John almost inseparable. Not surprising, they'd been through a lot together. They were the inward core, if you will. They'd seen some things, the three of them, that the others hadn't seen. But they did spend a lot of time together. You'll remember that Peter and John were the first ones to the tomb to look inside. John 20, verses 1 through 8 of, of the men. It was John and a few of the other disciples that joined Peter when Peter said, I'm going fishing, John 21. And as a result, they wound up having breakfast with Jesus on the beach. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I would have loved to have had breakfast that morning. Can't you just, just, just picture the scene and, and the boat and the sand and, and the smell of the fire and the fish and Jesus, whom you've seen die on a cross and be buried, is, 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 and you have breakfast with him. John did. You'll recall it was during that time that Peter Asked Jesus a question, looking at John. He said, what about him, Lord? And you know Jesus' response. He said, if I want him to remain alive again until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. 
Speaking of Peter and John being together, you might recall as we move onward in the chronology of his life, in the process of his growth, in this journey that he was on to heaven. It was Peter and John, John again, who were headed up to the temple in Acts chapter 3. They were headed up there to pray when Peter healed a lame man and both Peter and John were taken into custody and they would have to stand before the Sanhedrin together in Acts 3 and 4. Bottom line is they saw some terribly tough times together. They saw some terribly tough times, period. John, along with the rest of them, but John saw or was at least very close to the situation with the martyrdom of Stephen and when the persecution of the church by Saul of Tarsus broke out in Acts 7 and 8. What did John do? Well, John was one of the apostles. What does it say about the apostles? They stayed in Jerusalem. The rest of the church scattered, but John stayed in this very life and death tumultuous atmosphere and environment there where the church was being persecuted literally to death. But you see, here's the thing, through all those trials, through all those hard times, through all the death, through all the persecution, through, through losing church members to death by, because they were faithful, through all of those trials and tribulations, they began to help, help John to grow and to mature. Brethren, that's, that's the thing we can't miss this in this. They would help grow and mature John into the leader that Jesus Christ needed for him to become. Simply because John, instead of continuing to be stubborn and repeating the mistakes of his youth, John would learn. John, no matter how many mistakes he made, you know, if you get knocked down a hundred times, take Jesus' hand for the hundred and first and get back up. That was John. He didn't quit just because times were tough. He didn't quit because of, of tribulation. He didn't quit because times were incredibly difficult. But instead, he learned not to repeat the mistakes of his youth. He humbled himself before God and he repented. And he allowed God to help him grow and to learn and to become so much more Christ-like through those things that he experienced. Brethren, this is, this is our life story. This is John, the apostle of life. In Acts 8, we see John, this, this great, I love this. Slow down, Douglas. In Acts 8, <clears throat> we see John. And <laughs> guess where he's called to? Samaria. And after he goes down to where Philip is, is baptized, a bunch of them, he and Peter make their way back through Samaria. Guess what they're doing? They're, they're preaching the gospel, it tells us in Acts 8. They're, guess what they're doing? They're sharing the good news with the Samaritans. Remember the Samaritans from Luke 9? That's the ones that James and John said, Lord, you want us to nuke them? Boy, John's come quite a ways, hasn't he? He's come from, let's call fire down from heaven. Telling the Samaritans, let me tell you about Jesus. Would you say that's progress? Same people, it's the Samaritans. Funny how Jesus, when properly taught, erases racial lines, isn't it? He's sharing the gospel with them to save their souls. Acts 8, 14 through 25, he's beginning to grow up. We often forget that shortly after that, tragedy struck. In Acts chapter 12, 
John's older brother, James, is beheaded by Herod. His older brother. His older brother that they left the nets and they left their father and all of that and they, they walked with Jesus for three and a half years and they're, they're in the upper room when all the apostles are together and, and they've seen so much. James is killed, his older brother. It wasn't some distant relative. It wasn't some fictitious Bible character. It was his own brother, his older brother. And then... Herod thinks, well, if I can do better than that, I'll take down Peter too. So he arrests Peter. Peter, whom John has spent a lot of time with. What would you have done? Peter, your best friend, your co-worker, and your traveling companion is facing the same fate as your older brother just did. What would you do? Would you be angry? Would you be mad? Would you quit on Jesus? Would you say you could have stopped this? What would you have done? You know what John did? He hung on to his faith, hung on to his God, grew in his maturity by humbling himself and allowing God to grow him through it. That's what he did. He grew up in Christ. We lose sight of John for the next ensuing years. According to history and according to the later biblical record, he apparently outlived all of the other apostles, including Peter, Paul, and those that he had eaten with and traveled with and witnessed miracles and heard teachings of Jesus alongside. Think about that. His whole crew, as it were, the, the other apostles, John outlived them all. He, he, that means if he outlived them all that they all died and he was aware of their deaths. You know, I've heard older people say in their 80s and 90s, you know, I used to have a lot of friends, but most of them are dead now. That was John. He was just humans you and I are. Later on in life, lost them all. He saw a lot of death and destruction. He saw a lot of unjust persecution. Persecution that would take down any Christian who is not committed in their heart fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was, and he continued to grow. Commentators tell us that he finally fled from Jerusalem about the time of the Neronian persecution between 63 and 70 AD. He saw the end coming for Jerusalem. He is believed to have wound up in Ephesus and worked with the church there for more than 20 years. Sometime during the last decade or so of his life when he was much older, you can see the growth because of the patience of God with him, despite his mistakes, you can see the growth. You can see the maturity. You can see this process. He, he wrote something in 3 John I want you to see. Please, please turn there. Brethren, aren't you glad God is patient with us? Guess not. Really? You guys all sleep this morning? I'm glad he's patient with me. Third John, I want you to notice what the older John, the John whom God has been patient with despite his mistakes, wrote. Third John, verses 9 through 11, 9 and 10. John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves, watch the irony, don't miss the irony of this, who loves to have the preeminence among them does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Don't miss verse 9. 
Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence. He said, I'm going to straighten him out. What were James and John doing around the table in Matthew 20? They wanted the place of prominence. When they sicked mommy dear on Jesus. But now you've got a man who's made his mistakes and God's been patient with him. And he's gotten up and he's tried it again and he's gotten to the point where he understands that men do not deserve prominence in the kingdom because they want to undercut everybody else. No way. And he says, Diotrephes, I'll fix him when I get there. What a way he has come. Speaking of the strength of his Christian commitment and his growth and his maturity, as we know as an old man, probably in his 90s, late 80s, 90s, somewhere around there, an older man, they can't shut him up. They can't shut him. He's going to tell everybody he knows about Jesus. They can't shut him up. So he's arrested. He's persecuted, tortured. And he's imprisoned on the island of Patmos just for being a faithful, hardworking, word-following, and refusing to deny Christ Christian. Revelation 1.9. And he was forced as an old man to endure some of the most incredibly awful conditions you can imagine. Sir William Ramsey wrote that exile on Patmos was, quote, preceded by scourging. If you were arrested and you were sentenced to Patmos, scourging, like Jesus endured scourging, was just part of the sentence. You, go to Pat you don't get to Patmos without scourging, according to this particular writer. And it was marked by perpetual fetters. Perpetual means continual. Fetters are the leg irons, that, that sort of thing, shackles of some sort. Scanty clothing, they didn't care what these men wore, if it was just rags. Insufficient food, they were prisoners. If they died, so what? Throw them into the ocean. Throw them into the water, rather. And they were also forced to sleep on the bare ground. When I was a lot younger, I used to work with the youth, and we'd have these youth rallies, and we would have these, these situations where the teens would all go to this one church and spend like Friday night and Saturday night. They'd have lessons and activities all day. And, um, one of the things they do, the girls would be put up in congregation members' homes, but the, the guys would have the local school and we'd have the gym. They could play basketball till 4 o'clock in the morning if their chaperones allowed it. And one of the things we used to do was take sleeping bags. There's men chaperones, you know, we were, we were tough, right? So we'd take these, these sleeping bags and we'd sleep on the hardwood floor of the basketball court. And, you know, back then I could do that. It was okay, you know, I could sleep on a floor. Not so sure I'd sleep quite so well at my age now. Probably wouldn't get up quite so quick as I did then. John, in his late 80s, maybe 90s, had to sleep on bare rock. That was the conditions on Patmos, with scanty clothing, insufficient food, fetters, some of the most dreadful conditions imaginable. And he had to work under the lash of military overseers, we might picture the Israelites in Egypt and some of the movies maybe we've seen with overseers and whips and all of that. That was the conditions on Patmos. And, and here's this elderly, elderly man there. And Listen, if a man could be broken, John should have been. Was John some superman in a cape? No, no, John just like the rest of us. John had his problems, he had his, but he never let go of Jesus. And Jesus never let go of 
him. I love my God. John certainly had seen a lot, but he wasn't flawless. But through it all, from the moment that he left the boats behind to follow Jesus till his death, he held on to God, he followed faithfully in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he loved so totally and had seen set the perfect example. John was there that night when Jesus said, Father, if, it, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but if not, not, not my will, but thine be done. John was there. And he followed that example. If I gotta be on Patmos, so be it, but I'm not giving up my God. I don't know where you are this morning, but let me tell you something. Don't give up on your God. You may struggle. There may be times that the devil says to you, well, you can't po God can't possibly forgive this or God can't possibly work with you. Ah, you failed again. You need to tell Satan to take his, take his nasty words and go back to hell where he belongs because you have a God who is willing to stand with you if you are willing to hang on to him no matter who you are, no matter where you've been. He did it with John. He'll do it with you. That's the example that we have in Scripture. This is the same example he himself encouraged his suffering brethren in Smyrna to follow when John wrote by divine inspiration in Revelation 2.10 the following words. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days, not a literal 10 days. It was going to be ongoing. 10 is the number in Revelation, one of the numbers for completeness. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Is that true? If you are faithful until death, will Jesus give you the crown of life? Yes or no? Then it has to be that way. Just because you struggle as a human being to grow does not mean that you lose your salvation. What it means is, is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and we get up and we learn something from it and we take another go at it. Thank God that he is the God of second chances. Not only did he remain completely committed to the Lord no matter what he lost or it cost him in this earthly life, he determined to allow the Lord to help him grow stronger and closer to him through every perilous and pain-filled step of the way home. That is exactly what it means to crucify the old man of sin and put him to death in the waters of Christian baptism and to arise to walk in newness of life. It means to arise, to take Jesus' hand, to follow this word. We talk about taking Jesus' hand. It's not literal, obviously. But what that means is living by the book. And, and listen, if you are baptized this morning, if, if you get baptized, if you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, we'd love to study with you about that. And you can see where that's at new birth and where our sins are forgiven and we rise up and all of that. But listen, that new life, that new life does not mean that you're not going to occasionally make mistakes. Right, church? But you can't let Satan take that mistake and say, Aha, see? You're still the same. 
Don't even count on God. Let me tell you something. You need to count on God because God said, I will, I, will, I will be there. I'll be patient with you. I will grow you. I will work with you. And when you fail, there's my grace if you'll just confess your sin and get up and try it again. If you've never been baptized, we'd love to baptize you into Christ this morning for the proper reason, for the forgiveness of your sins. You can rise up to walk in this newness of life. Or if you're somebody here and you've done that, but you're saying, you know what? I've gotten to the point where, where I just, I struggle so much. I struggle so much. And you need the prayers of the saints to be stronger and realize that it's true, your struggles, that God teaches you and helps you and grows you and matures you. If you just need the prayers of the saints to realize that more and to be stronger in your trials, whatever it is you need, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not leave or forsake him. This morning, if you have a need, let us know so we can help you as we stand and sing.